Are you a good person? What percentage of people do you think would say that they are a good person? A few weeks ago, I was listening to the host of a popular radio program discuss this very question. And they answered as as you'd expect, that most of us think we're basically good. And when faced with this question, we instinctually measure our own goodness on the sliding scale of the relative goodness or badness of, of other people. You know, if we're not comparing ourselves to others, we, we measure ourselves against our own criteria of, of what makes someone good, a, a kind of self-made thermometer we use to take the moral temperature of our hearts. Now, this is what those radio hosts did. They spent the entire segment measuring themselves against a a number of different signs that pointed to you either being good or bad. So in social settings, do you try to include people who are left out? You see someone standing alone at a party and you go over and you talk to them. Now if you're at the grocery store and you decide you don't want something that you've already put in your cart, do you Do you walk it all the way across the store to put it back, or do you just kind of offload it right there wherever you are in the store? When you unload your shopping cart at your car, do, do you take the cart back to that corral, or do you leave it in a nearby parking spot? Or worse, do you lift it up over the curb and leave it in the grass? When someone is getting on the interstate, do you let them merge into your lane or do you hit the gas to get ahead of them? Are you quick to to admit your mistakes or do you shift your blame to others? How'd you do? How's your mental scorecard right now? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? I think this is a question we all wrestle with to one degree or another. Now, it's certainly a question kids under the age of 10 will be asking themselves this week. Have I been a good little boy or, or girl? Am I on Santa's naughty or nice list? Now, we can debate all day how, about how we or Santa Claus or talk radio hosts might answer this question and about what criteria we should use to to measure one's relative goodness or badness. But what about God? How do you think he would answer that question? How would he answer that question about you? Well, the Bible actually gives us his answer. And to help us think through his assessment of us, I want us to look this morning at Psalm 14. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 14. If you don't have one, you can find the text on page 9 of that worship guide you got on your way in this morning. As you turn there, I must warn you that that Psalm 14 is not the kind of classic Christmas text text you'd, you'd expect to hear in church on the Sunday before Christmas. Instead of of filling us with the warm fuzzies of a Hallmark movie, Psalm 14 slams into us like a freight train. 
right out of the gate, its author, King David, comes at us with a vicious and sobering right hook. And then he follows that up with a mean left uppercut that that puts us flat on our backs and down for the count. God's moral assessment of us, it ain't pretty. None of us is as good as we think. In fact, God's assessment of us is, is much worse than any of us could have ever imagined. But then, just as we think we are done for in this psalm, David's going to, he's going to put the smelling salts of God's grace under our nose and open our eyes to the extraordinary hope that can be ours in Christ. So let's hear what God has to say about us and what hope we can have in him. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and who do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, We don't get much in the way of context about this psalm. Now, David is attributed as the author, but beyond that, uh, we simply don't know much about the circumstances. The psalm's classification, it's it's also hard to pin down. It's kind of a mashup of, of both a wisdom and lament psalm. Wisdom in that it clearly instructs and contrasts the way of the fool with the way of the righteous, much like Psalm 1 does. But the psalm is also littered with the language and the groans of lament. Its structure doesn't take the form of a traditional lament, uh, like we saw a few weeks ago when Trey preached from Psalm 13. But David does leave textual clues throughout the, the psalm that help us to see the painful and lamentable circumstances out of which the psalm is born. The wording of the psalm is, Repeating, repeated almost verbatim in Psalm 53 uh, and, and in Romans 3, which Audrey read for us earlier. Uh, Paul picks up verse 3 when he makes the case for the universality of our sin. So the Lord obviously did, did not want us to miss the point that's being made here in Psalm 14. Now, I, I know nothing says Merry Christmas quite like guess what? You are a sinner. But I think this is one of the real beauties of the Psalms. 
For they don't hold back any punches about the human condition and and our need for a redeemer. Instead, the Psalms give us this full-bodied picture of what it means to be human. Think back to what David says about us in Psalm 8. There he he celebrates the glory and the honor God has, has crowned us with as his most prized creation. But here in Psalm 14, he laments the the travesty of our sin. We are at once glorious and fallen. We are at once the, the very crown of God's creation and the objects of his judgment. We carry both the honor of of bearing God's image and the shame of our sin. So Psalm 14 has the honesty and the courage to tell it to us straight. We are glorious, but none of us is good. That's, That's the bad news of Psalm 14. That's the really, really bad news. But that's not where the psalm ends. There's good news. Really, really good news. And this is actually what makes Psalm 14 such an appropriate text for us to think about as we enter this final week of Advent. For as much as as Psalm 14 kind of holds our heads under the water of God's judgment, it will also fill our lungs with the hope of the only one who can redeem us and reconcile us to God. That's ultimately what Psalm 14 is about. It's not finally about us, but about the God who sends his son to save us. The psalm breaks down into three basic parts. Verses 1, 2, and 3, David highlights the the desperate condition of our sin. And then in verses 4 to 6, he's going to focus on the judgment that awaits those who continue to persist and, and oppose God and his people. And then verse 7 closes the psalm with with a prayer pregnant with longing for the coming Messiah who will restore Israel's fortunes. And all of this and all of this is working together to emphasize the main point of the psalm. The main idea of the the the, the, the whole psalm and it's this that though our condition is desperate our deliverer has come. Though our condition is desperate, our deliverer has come. And I think this psalm is going to drive this home really in in two ways. And these are going to serve as our two points this morning. First, the psalm is going to show us our desperate condition. Our desperate condition. And then secondly, it's going to come on the other side of that. And it's going to give us our only hope. Our only hope. So point number one, our desperate condition. In the very first verse, the the camera angle zooms in on one David calls the fool. The the term fool there isn't, isn't talking about somebody with a low IQ score. Though what the fool concludes about God is admittedly not very smart. But nor does, nor does David have in mind the, the modern-day atheist that probably comes immediately to mind for us. 
David's fool isn't uh, Israel's equivalent to to Richard Dawkins or or Christopher Hitchens. Instead, the term points to uh, an aggressive perversity of, of moral character. A character that's epitomized by the fool Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, which Brad actually preached back in the spring. Nabal, whose name in Hebrew literally means fool, uh, and is the same word that's used here for fool in verse 1, you'll remember he foolishly dismisses and insults David in a time of great need. Just as the fool in Psalm 14 brushes aside God, Nabal brushes aside David. And instead of, of receiving the king into his care, he decides to throw a party for himself and goes into a drunken stupor. And the next morning, Nabal is, is paralyzed and the Lord strikes him down dead 10 days later. This is the kind of, of fool that Psalm 14 has in mind. One who knows God is there, but treats him like he's not. He dismisses God, not not because of his ontological or intellectual objections, but because he simply wants to sin. And he knows God will just get in the way. And it's this flippant disregard of God that that opens the door wide to the corruption described in in the middle of verse 1. The word corrupt has in mind a, a kind of heart-level spoiling that's taken place, which then snowballs into the deeds that are offensive to God. They are corrupt and now do corruptly. Now they behave like there's no God to hold them accountable. They think they're free to act and do however they want. They're, they're like the teenager who decides to throw a kegger because they think mom and dad have left town for the weekend. This is the kind of foolish, depraved descent Paul describes in Romans 1. So the fool says there is no God because at his core he is corrupt, he is spoiled. So it's not that we have all these intellectual hang-ups about God that that cause our heart to become corrupt. No, it's because we are corrupt that we come up with all kinds of absurd reasons to reject God. At a heart level, we don't want God to exist. We only want to feed our own insatiable appetite for sin and desire. That's why David says the fool says what he says about God in his heart. Because for the Israelite, the the heart was the operating system for all moral and ethical decision making. So you may be here this morning and, and categorically don't believe in God. You don't think a God exists. Or, or maybe you're just a casual, undecided skeptic. Whatever the case, there are all of these, these mental hurdles that are too hard to overcome. All these intellectual problems you can't wrap your, your mind around or questions that, that have answers that don't finally satisfy you. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate questions that, that we ought to wrestle with and, and need to have answers to. There certainly are. 
The Bible and Christianity, they have got strong answers for all of them. But what Psalm 14 is saying is that your primary objection to God, your biggest problem with your creator is not an intellectual one. It is a moral one. It's not our brains that pit us against God. It is our heart. It's our desire for moral autonomy and to be freed from all moral accountability. All our intellectual objections to God are just symptomatic of the heart disease we've all got. This is why David doubles down at the end of verse 1 when he says there is no one who does good. This is how rotten to the core the fool is. But this isn't just what David says about the fool. This is what God says about all of us. In verses 2 and 3, the scene shifts to, to God's perspective. The camera angle pans out, and we now see what God sees. And in a scene reminiscent to the flood in Genesis 6 and, and to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the Lord surveys humanity from his heavenly vantage point. Like a spotlight, he, he scans the whole of creation for just one person, just one, who acts wisely, who fears the Lord and seeks after him with his whole heart. And the creator king of the universe can't find any. Not a single one. All of humanity, all of it, is rotten to the core. We are all bad apples. I'm bad. You are bad. Everyone in this room is bad. None of these 7.8 billion people on the planet are good. God says we are all bad. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, you actually can't get more inclusive than verses 2 and 3. The term children of man there in verse 2, it's, it's derivative of the Hebrew word for all people, which means all people. Everyone. Israelites and Gentiles included. And just in case we miss the point, David spells it out even more clearly for us in verse 3. This is how foolish we are. None of us are the exception. All of us, all of us have this virus in our veins right now. And all of us are showing the symptoms. So we play our little comparison game. And we, we think we're okay. We're, we're better than this, this guy or, or this girl. But God says we are wicked to the core. We act like the center of, of our own little universe and think the one who made the universe isn't paying attention to us. Like the fools that we are, we sin and think God doesn't take 
that he won't judge us, that he can't see, that he's not there. But God is there, and he does see. He is looking down on us as a judge and witness, observing and weighing all of our actions and heart. And in verse 3, God's gavel falls, echoing across every corner of the courtroom of creation, and every single one of us gets indicted. We are all guilty in the courtroom of our Creator. Now, I recognize that this is not an easy pill for us to swallow. The world is repulsed by by this teaching. And even those of us who claim Christianity have a hard time with it. It's why heresies rejecting it started, started cropping up in the history of the church as early as the 5th century. But this is what the Bible says about us. This is God's assessment. We are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We are sold under sin, Romans 7.14. We are in captivity to the law of God, Romans 7.23. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Our hearts are full of evil, Ecclesiastes 9.13. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah 53.6. I could go on and on. And on. Whether we like it or not, this is God's assessment of us. And yet we we recoil at what God has to say about our condition. Even those of us who are, are Christians and agree with God's assessment of us have a tendency to to evade what Psalm 14 says about us. I think we naturally drift into one of three ditches. One, either we think we're not as bad as as God says we are. And that if we just work a little harder, then then God will accept us based upon our own good intentions. In the end, instead of hold us accountable, he'll, he'll overlook our offenses. And he'll invite us into his presence because we got better. Because we we modified our behavior. I put this sin to death. I stopped this bad habit. I I helped this little old lady across the street this many times. Or we compare ourselves to others. We do exactly what those radio hosts did. We know we're bad, but at least we're not as bad as that person. And so we set up our own sliding scale of of morality. We, We measure our own goodness against the perceived goodness or badness of others. And we become like the Pharisee in in Luke 18 who prays, God, I I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Or another ditch, we, we agree with God's assessment of us. But we agree so much so that that we actually go beyond what God says about us. We believe we're so wicked 
and so corrupt that, that we feel we're too far gone for even God to care about. We're so depraved that not even God can save us. That he wouldn't even want to if he could. Oh, if God only knew the things that I've done, we say. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're so bad that we're unlovable, irredeemable. And so we live our lives in misery and shame and regret, thinking we disgust God and that he would never want anything to do with us. But all three of these ditches make the same fatal mistake of assuming that God measures us by the standards we set, not by the one he has already set in his own character. But if we lift our gaze to the ultimate standard of goodness, to God himself, we realize very quickly that we don't get to decide what or who is good or bad. Only God gets to do that. Because only God is good. He alone is the supreme standard of goodness. And when we compare ourselves to him, only then can we begin to, to get a sense of the desperate condition that our sin puts us in. And how futile our attempts are to win his favor. None of us is good. Only God is good. And he's so good, in fact, that he doesn't just leave us to languish in our desperate condition. No. This God is so good that he does something about it. This leads to our next point. Point number two. Our only hope. Our only hope. Verses verses four to seven, they highlight how God responds to us in our desperate condition. But they also teach us how, how we ought to respond to God in light of what he has just said about us in verses one, two, and three. Verses four, five, and six, they in particular turn the spotlight upon God's judgment of the fool, whom David uh, now refers to as an evildoer in verse four. So the fool's refusal to acknowledge God is going to lead them to oppose and hurt those who've, who've taken refuge in the Lord. People the Lord now calls in these verses, my people, verse 4. Righteous, verse 5. Poor, verse 6. The evildoers, however, they don't know the Lord. They don't call upon his name and consume and shame those who do. Instead of looking to God for salvation, they, they look to their own self-interest, feeding their own insatiable appetites, devouring any who stand in their way. So not only does the fool hate God, but they also hate his people. And this is what, this is what Jesus told his disciples would happen in John 15. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So brothers and sisters, this kind of opposition to God's people that meets us in verse 4, it shouldn't come as a shock to us. Don't be surprised that the world hates you for obedience to God's word and for your commitment to, to follow the way of Christ, your king, and not the way of the fool. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you are plundered and shamed in this life for his sake, then the Bible would call you blessed. Now, aligning yourself with this God, it will not mean making friends with the world. Hitching yourself to this God, it will cost you. And it very well may mean the the plundering of all that you hold dear in this life. It will cost you friends and family members. It could cost you your job, your reputation, your freedoms, your rights, maybe even your life. But did you notice where God is in the midst of all of this? Look at verse 5. God is with his people. He's with the generation of the righteous. And in verse 6, he's sheltering those who are being shamed. And notice in whose crosshairs the evildoers stand. Unknowingly. Verse 5, there they are in great terror. Why? Because the judge of the universe has come down off of his bench both to justify and to do justice. The deliverer. God himself has has come down both to judge those who oppose him and to save a people for himself. But how do we know? How do we know? How do we know that God is, is with us both to judge and to save? How do we know that this has happened? Well, because salvation for Israel has indeed come out of Zion. Zion is the place identified with the hill on which the city of Jerusalem stands. It was the seat of authority for Israel's king, most intimately King David. And throughout the Bible, Zion is considered the dwelling place of God himself. Zion was the place of, of God's very own throne and the seat of his own authority. God 
rules from Zion. He blesses from Zion. He judges from Zion. He shines forth from Zion. And he sends salvation for his people out of Zion. And 2,000 years ago, in a manger fit not for a baby, but for a king, that salvation Israel longed for would finally come out of Zion. That prayer pregnant with anticipation and desperation in verse 7 would finally give birth to a king who would save his people from their sins and strike down any who opposed him. A son, Jesus, whose name literally means God with us, would come to do the will of his father perfectly. Though he was like us and tempted in every way as we are, he remained without sin. The sin that that corrupts our hearts would have no claim on his. Verses 1, 2, and 3 couldn't touch him. They didn't apply to Jesus. And yet God in his mercy would make him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. God would put forward Jesus as a sacrifice to to take upon himself the, the condition and the judgment of our sin by dying the death that only you and I deserved. And though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God calls all to be justified by his Grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, freely offering salvation to all if, if we will turn from our sin and place our trust in Christ. Did you wonder, did you wonder as we read this, how, how those once called corrupt and wicked and sinful in verses 1, 2, and 3 ever got to be called God's people and righteous? How, how, does, how does one who's hostile to God suddenly go to being friends with God? Well, the answer to that, that question can only be in the salvation that God sends for us out of Zion. The Israelites are hopeless if they don't hope in God. And by hoping in God then, they were, they were hoping in the promised king that, that, that verse 7 anticipated, that he would eventually send out of Zion. And brothers and sisters, the, the same is true for us. Our only hope, our only hope from God is God with us. You and I are are hopeless if God doesn't act for us in Christ. This is what Colossians 1.19 says. For in him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, you and me, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. It is only through Jesus that you and I get the heart transplant we desperately need. And it's only by turning to him in faith that that we can be saved from the wrath that puts the evildoer in great terror. The only hope, the only hope we will have in that moment when the judge of the universe looks down on us and calls us to account will be in the protection that God himself has provided for us in Christ. And that salvation will not fail us. In that day, it will be enough. Christ will be enough. Because the wrath that should have been poured out on our heads was already poured out on his. So Christian, brother and sister in Christ, Rest assured. Rejoice. When God's judgment comes, it will not be a terror for you. As long as you are taking refuge in in the salvation that the Lord has provided, his coming wrath against his enemies and those who are hurting his people, it will be your vindication. God is with you. He is with you if you are in Christ. You are on his side if you are in him. You know, as as World War II was drawing near its end, 513 allied POWs found themselves languishing in in a hellish Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. And among them were the last survivors of the infamous Bataan Death March. Recent prison massacres by by Japanese soldiers elsewhere had left little time for the American forces to plan the the operation that that was going to be required to rescue these POWs before the Japanese murdered them all. And so 121 U.S. Special Forces Army Rangers were were hand-selected to slip behind enemy lines to pull off one of the war's greatest rescue missions. But as the Army Rangers neared that prison camp, creeping on their, their bellies through rice paddies right outside the gates, their fear of, of being detected by the Japanese increased at at an alarming rate, so much so that that they were unable to to move another muscle without being detected. And in that moment, all hope seemed lost for the mission. But suddenly, out of nowhere, the Rangers, the POWs, And the Japanese soldiers all heard a low, indistinct rumble. 
Within a few seconds, that, that rumble clarified into a more familiar, crisp sound. The clean, metallic hum of prop engines. Unbeknown to all, a request for, for air support had been granted, and now two American fighter jets were hurtling across the sky toward them at a low altitude, menacing midnight black U.S. warplanes with a, a long-capped snout, a swollen abdomen with, with cannons on both sides, sweeping black tails and, and a hooked needle stuck in its nose that looked like a stinger. Its name? The Black Widow. Now in that moment, as those two, two fighter jets roared down on that prison camp, how do you think those rangers and POWs felt? Can you imagine the, the kind of elation and confidence and, and joy that must have pumped through their veins in that moment? You know, for those of us in Christ, that is, that is only a shadow of what we can expect to feel when God comes to vindicate us. But for those, of, those outside of Christ, that same judgment, that same vindication will fill them with an unimaginable fear and terror. What horror and, and utter confusion and hopelessness must have paralyzed those Japanese soldiers when they realized that those black widows were coming for them. Friend, if, if you are here and you are not in Christ... This is the kind of terror coming for you. Whether you realize it or not, this is the, the danger and the, the desperate situation your rejection of Christ puts you in. And so I, I implore you this morning to abandon your sin and run to Christ for cover. Your sin is not worth it. Hear, hear the warning bells, the alarm that is going off in Psalm 14. Now those, those fools and evildoers in the psalm, they don't think God's wrath is coming. They think they'll, they'll be okay that they won't be judged. But they will. And so will we. So friend, repent and believe. Trust in the salvation that God has provided for you in Christ and be saved. You know, only a fool would be confronted with this God and this kind of eternal danger and persist in unbelief. 
And if you're here, if you're here and you are taking refuge in Christ, then rejoice. Oh, brother and sister, rejoice. For your deliverer has come for you. And he will come again. You know, notice, notice where the psalm ends. Look there in verse 7. It started with our sin and judgment, but it ends with our joy and gladness. We began bankrupt, but now our cups are overflowing. This is the work that our deliverer secures for us. He comes to make his blessings flow as far and wide as the curse is found. And in doing so, he secures for us an eternal inheritance that will never fade, never be taken away from us. And that work, those fortunes that get restored, it's a done deal. Verse 7 doesn't say, if the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. It says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. One day soon, God the judge will execute his holy judgment on his enemies. And those of us in Christ will gather together with a great multitude around the table of our king to celebrate the one the Lord sent forth from Zion to save us from our sins. On that day, on that glorious and great and eternal day, our cups will overflow out of the abundance of his goodness and we will feast. We will feast with all the redeemed in the house of Zion. And we will spend all eternity praising the king who came out of Zion to restore our fortunes. For though our condition was desperate, our deliverer came for us. And he will come for us again. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you this morning for the gift of grace that is Christ Jesus the King. Lord, though our, our, our condition was, was desperate, our deliverer came for us. You sent him who knew no sin to become sin for our sake. And now you've restored our fortunes through faith in him. And so, Lord, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for, for that son we praise you that, that we are not hopeless in him. Lord, help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel to which you've called us. Help us to put on Christ and to put off the foolish and evil ways of our hearts. Oh God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.